0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Device Talks. I'm Brian Johnson, the publisher of massdevice.com, and I'm here today with Graham Lidgard, the Chief Science Officer of Exact Sciences. Graham, thank you for joining us today.
1: Oh, I'm pleased to be uh, able to talk to you.
0: Graham, you have a extensive career, I believe it's 40-year career in diagnostic development, and I read that you led a team that developed the world's first molecular diagnostics test to screen the world's blood, su- blood supply for HIV, Hep C, and a bunch of other uh, blood-borne viruses. So when you donate blood, essentially a good portion, maybe 70% of the time, your blood is screened with a test that you developed or led a team that developed. Um, I'd like to start with a question about your work. What drew you to this calling? What What made you want to detect... Uh, diseases and and blood-borne pathogens and those types of things.
1: Um, Yeah, well, I really got excited about uh, measuring things in biological fluids. Uh, When I was doing my uh, Ph.D., I was doing it in biological chemistry and doing membrane transport. And uh, I was closely associated with the medical school and uh, just enjoyed going to the lectures about uh, measuring um, you know, glucose and uh, calcium, magnesium, and sodium in blood. And uh, I uh, applied for a position in um, in Edinburgh and ended up running a clinical lab that was really in the very early days of immunoassay development. So we had some of the first um, immunoassays that were being uh, used, growth hormone, thyroid-stimulating hormone, uh, all the uh, estrogens, and uh, I just found it uh, really personally satisfying, and exciting to be able to measure small amounts, very, very small amounts of uh, materials in blood and provide uh, really, you know, useful diagnostics, that really uh, help people. It, w- it felt good uh, providing uh, answers to clinical questions.
0: So it was sort of the craft of doing this that attracted you to it, not not a mission to solve the world's uh, medical problems.
1: No, I, uh, I didn't have that uh, level of aspiration.
0: <laughs> and yet, and yet, you ended up doing, uh, making a significant uh, contribution to that. Um, is it accurate though, that when you donate blood 70% of the time your blood I, is- I don't sp- know
1: what the percentage is now. I mean, at one time it was almost uh, 95% were using the Aptima uh, um, assay for uh, screening HIV, HCV in blood. Uh, I don't know what that is now because uh, I haven't been associated with that for over ten years.
0: Right. And, and when did you do this work though? That was I. That say, was I it, know, uh, when I, it? I was
1: working at Genprobe. I ran the research and development uh, at Genprobe, and we won a National Heart, Lung, and Blood contract. To develop a instrument and um, assay system to screen um, uh, donated blood for virus. I don't know whether you're familiar with the the problem of uh, the wind, what they call the window problem, which is um, it takes a while for antibodies to develop. So the current tests at the time that are still used that detect antibody can be um, 10 to 60 day window before you actually show up with antibody Mm. but you have the virus circulating and can transmit it in a donation so the uh the window period was really what the uh uh, the national heart lung uh, was trying to solve and we won the contract for that and developed the technology and eventually won the one for uh, organ donor screening as as well, which is really a, just an extension of the blood test. And um, that became a, a joint effort with Chiron. Um, Chiron marketed and sold the uh, assays, and Genpro manufactured and developed the assays.
0: And that must have been extremely rewarding, though, uh, to. To to make that sort of contribution, I mean that's Uh, yeah,
1: but you know, I had a great team, and I think that's really the key to success in in our business is really teamwork and having the diversity and the mixture of intellect and experience that you can bring together and get a team to really do some extraordinary things,
0: right? And and now you're at Exact Sciences, and you're how you headquartered out in Wisconsin with where the company is as well yes okay and you've been there for about uh, I would say six years now is that
1: yeah I joined in uh, August of 2009 Um.
0: so exact science is a very very exciting company also doing incredible work here in saving lives uh, particularly uh, in the in the tests for uh, colorectal cancer colon cancer colon cancer they call it the most preventable yet least prevented cancer and there's it's the second most deadly cancer with 50,000 deaths per year and i guess my question is just why and and how
1: uh why is it uh, still a problem <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and, i i mean that's a, a a large way to ask it but i mean why I mean how could something be the most preventable that yet least prevented I mean I um, guess that, that's an I interesting I b-
1: because screening is uh, and any form of screening has shown to produce uh, results in uh, in detecting cancer but um, it's one of those things the the most prevalent are the uh, recommended procedures like um, colonoscopy and uh, um, sigmoidoscopy used to be uh, are, are invasive procedures, and they mm. take time. Um, you have to do a lot of prep for it. It can be expensive if you, you know, don't get paid for the two days' time off that you have to take to do the test. And uh, the schedule in can be two or three months ahead of time. And by the time you get there, you know you've got a, you know, your child sick or something like that, or you're. Got to look after your parents. Uh, you know, who knows what's happening three months down the road. And so, r- r- about 50% of people are compliant. There's there's high in numbers, but I think when you look at it, look at all the forms of measurement, um, it's not much more than 50% of the people that actually are getting screened. And so, it's really clearly shown that having multiple choices and non-invasive tests. Is uh, is an additional choice that people will uh, will make. Um, you know, colour guards turned out to have over 30% of the people that are being tested today have never been screened before. So uh, those choices, uh, high sensitivity test, you know, we're 92% sensitive, 87% specific. It's really a a good uh, a good choice of um, test. To take from the point of view of our busy schedules it's something that's easy to do you can do it at home um, so I think you know we hope and, and uh, believe that we'll see um, you know a good uptake on call and hopefully help reduce the uh, incidence of colon cancer mm-hmm. and we do detect uh, um, pre-cancer in early stage so that that helps as well if you can find those polyps, high-grade dysplasias, before they ever develop into cancer, um, you can really make a difference.
0: Before we kind of jump on the uh, colonoscopy and, and the 50% compliant, because I do want to drill down on that, I, I mean, is 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 the disease so deadly because we don't detect it early enough specifically? Because I know that you can, I believe 90% can be cured at stage one.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really a, it's a silent disease. I mean, symptomatically, um, you don't really see anything unless you, you know, observe blood in your stool or that you have a difficulty going to the toilet and uh, have a, a physical blockage. But up until that point, it's symptomless, so uh, it can get to stage 3, stage 4 before anybody knows about it.
0: Really, so 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 when you have blood in your stool, you could even be that that might be too late at that point, or
1: visible blood in the stool is is really uh, you know a strong indicator. I mean, obviously there's hemorrhoids and other reasons, but uh, sure. um, you know in in Kologuard, the level of blood we detect is uh, is invisible. You you would not be able to see it. Hmm. So we detect as part of the test, uh, we can detect bleeding much much earlier, but if, if physically you see it and it's due to a uh, cancer, it's, it's usually late stage.
0: Right. So when we talk about in the war against cancer, the battle against cancer, you know, I'm always sort of conditioned, and I think the general public is, to think about a cure for cancer, but it's really more about finding the cancer earlier and earlier.
1: Yeah, as a company, we really believe that early detection is the answer. We spend a tremendous amount of money on um, really trying to... Cure late stage disease, which is extremely difficult and, you know, most of the time unsuccessful. Uh, we spend very little time and money on uh, early detection and, and promoting screening. Um, and I think it's clearly shown. Uh, I always use cervical cancer as a good example. Um, it's not even discussed today as a as a high um, risk cancer and killer because. Uh, the problem was solved a long time ago with a uh, good uh, Pap screening method that mm-hmm. um, detects early stage cancer and cancer and has dramatically reduced the uh, the incidence of cancer. Um, so that's a good example of a uh, early detection makes a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think in in general, the more effort we put into early detection, the better chance we have of of eliminating it as a as a killer. Now I, you know, I, I always say that we have to die of something. Um, you right. know, by the time we get to a hundred, there's lots of things that are going to kill us. And uh, you know, I think cancer is still going to be around, but if we can <clears throat> push it back to that age level and out of the, you know, sixty-year-old level, we've made a massive difference.
0: Absolutely. So awareness. You know, definitely that's a huge ch- uh, challenge for you guys. Um, and, and and then that, I think that goes back to the colonoscopy, though, because if people are aware of how prevalent this disease is and, and how much of a killer it is and how critical early detection is, I mean, are, are colonoscopies just really that bad?
1: Um, I think it's, it's, sub- it's subjective. I mean, obviously there's a... Percentage of people that just will not get one right. it, uh, is frightening to them. It, uh, it's invasive, and the you know when you talk about a one percent risk of cancer or a five or six percent lifetime risk of colon cancer, um, you know life's too busy to get get into uh, doing those types of tests. So I don't I don't think um, colonoscopy is that bad. It's the issue of uh, choice and uh, um in our busy schedules getting around to doing things right and um a home collected stool test is a pretty simple way of uh, addressing that we all have to go to the bathroom and yeah right. why not make it productive <laughs>
0: <laughs> beyond
1: reading <laughs>
0: um in col- colonoscopy though um it's recommended that all people over 50 get one or
1: um it's uh, 50 to um i think 75 is the uh, the recommended uh, right. 74 is the recommended age group the risk of col- of colonoscopy and the um you know the adverse effects there's possibility of uh, bowel penetration um, you know risk of uh, you know, heart attack uh, in in the elderly. Now those are very low, but uh, right. I think in general the experts have suggested that beyond that age, the risks don't uh, add up to the benefits. Um, but uh, certainly over fifty.
0: So you got all these people though that they're supposed to go in and get them at fifty, and yet it's fifty percent compliant, which is good. I mean, when you look at what I, mean, I don't even, I think people follow up care after heart attacks is pretty darn low too. Uh, but uh, that's still a massive amount of the population that is opting out of a critical test that could determine whether or not they're going to l- detect a deadly disease or not. So that's a, a massive opportunity there. And I'm wondering when you joined exact sciences, I mean, you Exact you joined the company at a pretty precarious time in its life cycle. I mean, I think in two thousand and nine, when you joined the company, stock was down below a dollar. I mean, was what? Tell me about what drew you to that to that to make that move. I know you were living in San Diego, and maybe, and you moved to Madison. What what drew you there?
1: Well, it, I mean, there was I think uh, four or five people in the company at uh, that time. The company had gone through serious financial trouble with a a clinical trial that had only delivered marginal sensitivity. And uh, the the board in their foresight decided to sell off some technology and then reinvest the money in restarting the company because they really believed in the the mission of the company. And um, uh, Kevin Conroy, the CEO, had uh, agreed to take over running the company if it moved to Madison. And he, in partnership with Manish Arora, were you know, working with the Mayo to try and figure out what technologies and how to restart the company. And when I came, I I saw exactly what you described, that, you know, there's a big unmet need of colorectal cancer. It's something that early detection had already shown to make a difference. So how can we improve or get more people detected early? Um, Personality-wise, Kevin and uh, Manish, I found... uh, you know really great people that I wanted to work with and I saw that there were some good biological markers that were already in the company it was just a matter of bringing technology together in a way that would allow us to detect it with high sensitivity and precision and you know I'd done that before so those three things coming together made me excited to uh, to come to uh, medicine and uh, you know, build the team to develop the asset.
0: Was this the earliest you've been in a company, or had you been in earlier in terms of... Uh,
1: No, I've been at the same time. I was a co-founder of a company called MatriTech in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, that was involved in um, nuclear matrix proteins for the detection of cancer. And we developed um, a bladder cancer asset for recurrent bladder cancer, it's called NMP-22, it's now sold by Alir, and at the time we were the smallest company to get a PMA product through the FDA. So I've been in the early pieces of startup and building a team, so it it didn't, you know, those pieces didn't concern me.
0: Uh, Did you see, though, that this was, despite where it was, um, you obviously had very high confidence that the company was going to rebound significantly and, and that you could make a, uh, an impact.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm, everybody who knows me calls me the eternal optimist, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a good judge of uh, that, uh, that vision. I'm just, I just know that you get a lot of bright people together and do a lot of hard work and uh, drive something with passion. You can usually mm-hmm. achieve results.
0: If you can, kind of tell us about what those days were like when you joined on and, and how you how you guys put the pieces together. I mean, you said one of the challenges in battling cancer is that everyone in the industry looks for the holy grail, you know, one marker that does everything. Um, was there a holy grail um, when you were building the collar guard with your team? or
1: No, I mean, that's, that's really one of the things I learned early in my career, that, um, you know, the one-marker solution has is, is just not succeeded. Uh, it, you know, the industry is littered with markers that are just not good enough, um, and um, nobody really put a lot of effort in bringing them together. E- even in the early days of Color when we talked about bringing an immunoassay for hemoglobin together with mutation molecular markers and methylation markers, the response of some of the thought leaders was, well, those will have to be done in different labs because the immunode group do that work in this lab and the molecular group do that work in that lab. And our response was no, we're gonna put it all together on the same platform. Um, so that was, that was a lot of the mentality, I think, and I think it still is to a certain extent. So we never really looked at Uh, a holy grail of a single marker. It was, um, we had some good markers. The the first problem we had to solve was really how to get the DNA, the human DNA out of stool in sufficient quantity to be able to measure. And we developed a lot of uh, technology pieces have a lot of patents on that whole area of um, using magnetic particles with specific pieces of DNA that capture the human DNA um, and and do a, you know, almost a billion fold purification in terms of getting it away from the bacterial DNA in stool Hmm. and then cleaning that material up so that we could measure it in a molecular assay.
0: Maybe we should maybe we should rewind for a second. Just talk about the color uh, the color guard in terms of the product itself. Now we you did mention it quickly, um, but it is essentially an at-home testing kit.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a it's at-home an an kit. T- it, 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 it's a container that collects uh, a whole stool. Um, you pour. You take a small sample into a small tube for hemoglobin, and then pour a. 290 mil of buffer over the stool, close the container, and ship it back to the lab. Um, at the lab, we mix that uh, container after diluting it to a constant buffer to stool amount, and then we take a approximately a um, 50 mil, 42 mil aliquot of that material, spin it down, take the supernatant, and then uh, Uh, remove inhibitors with an uh, an inhibitor removal tablet, filter out that uh, inhibitor removal material, and then we mix it with what's called a chaotrope. Uh, It's a reagent that causes the DNA to unwind and the strands to separate. And we mix that with magnetic particles to capture the DNA, heat it up to uh, 95 degrees, cool it down, and aspirate off the supernatant from the magnetic particles. So we have a machine that captures the magnetic particles and aspirates off the liquid, and then uh, we elute the DNA uh, in a completely automated process, and we do both the mutation and methylation, and then we do hemoglobin on the uh, original tube, the small tube that was collected separately. Um, All of those assays are run automatically, and then we collect the data through a software program and have an algorithm that weights all of the 11 markers and calculates a yes-no result.
0: Wow. That's remarkably complex. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it, and we, we realized that early on, and that's why we, we developed uh, a, an automated platform. We realized it was a little bit too complicated to run manually in a clinical lab. Yeah. So we, uh, we developed a platform to be able to run the assay as well.
0: So you said it's 11 different biomarkers that you're checking against? To, to yeah, well,
1: seven, seven of them are mutations in KRAS. So they're different mutations, but it is seven individual assays that measures those mutations and uh and then we have two methylation markers and uh hemoglobin and then we have a controlled gene actin that just measures the uh, total amount of human dna that we've extracted mm.
0: and, and did you i mean uh, forgive me for being ignorant but did you did you know that you could extract that dna from stool or i mean what are the challenges there in terms of, uh, you said there's well, the bacterial company, DNA, the, the there's, had there's...
1: already developed some methods of extracting the DNA, but it took uh, seven days to, and it was really a complex procedure to get the DNA out. And then other people had done whole DNA precipitation and then tried to do capture, and the problem there is just too much DNA. So... Um, it was known that human DNA was in the stool it, it, very early on. Uh, uh, Dr. Vogelstein at Hopkins had shown that you could detect human KRAS mutations in stool. So the, the the problem was really figuring out how to get human DNA out of uh, and get rid of everything else and have enough to measure. And uh, we had lots of ups and downs. I mean, I. You, you, asked me to describe what the early days were like. It was sort of, uh, you know, everything failed on Friday, and we had solutions by Monday, and it, you know, it seemed to go on for weeks and weeks like that.
0: Right. <laughs> what a terrible day to fail, right?
1: Yeah, that that was somehow we got into that rhythm. It was hard to break it out because <laughs> I think, you know, Friday became a data analysis day, so that was really the day that you knew what you had or didn't have.
0: Right. I, I just, I'm curious as to why um, the DNA from the stool is, uh, I mean, could you extract DNA from any other part of the body and still determine the test, or is it just because of where the cancer is, is rooted? No, yeah,
1: you're, you're absolutely right. This is where the um, the cancer is and the adenomas. So the adenomas, these are small amounts of highly, highly growing cells uh, called dysplasia, that are precursors on the on the way to cancer and the uh, they, they uh, die and shed into the stool so it's uh, a sort of a collection reservoir for a lot of that material very little of it goes into the body and back into the into the bloodstream or anywhere else so it's a natural place to be able to find that material from the cancer cells the challenge is that the normal colon is also shedding um, cells. And so we had to develop what we call the quartz assay, which is a very, very highly sensitive way of looking at aberrant DNA in the presence of normal DNA. Um, if you're familiar with sequencing, sequencing, classic sequencing, you're lucky if you can detect a 5% level of a mutant in a the, in the background of wild-type DNA. Um, With modern methods and PCR, that gets pushed down to about 1%. But we were able to develop technology that measured it down to 0.01%. So we were able to see these abnormal DNAs in the presence of a very large amount of normal DNA. And that that really made a big difference in being able to uh, see the DNA from the cancer cells.
0: And... In terms of where the technology goes from here, is it just, you know, faster uh, results? Uh, Is there other technology applications you see? I mean, uh, as you move forward with the um, it's the the products, I think you had FDA approval 2014, uh, but I don't want to quote me on that, but so you're on the market, you're selling well, uh, but I mean, where was your challenge technologically from here?
1: Well, we're, we're looking at other cancers now and looking at what we can do in early detection. And I think you may have read that we formed a, a relationship with MD Anderson, one probably the, I think this the year, they were the number center, one cancer center in the U.S. Um, and we're looking at lung, cancer, lung uh, cancer. And this is a blood test. Uh, for for lung cancer that we're we're looking at, uh, working with uh, MD Anderson and I'm continuing, uh, uh, Mayo is still very much involved in our. Uh, we have a very close collaboration and a very strong collaboration with the Mayo team. Right, and, absolutely. Uh, We would not have been able to achieve colorectal without working with them.
0: Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, they were an essential part of your R and D team, right? Yeah, absolutely. Almost I don't know if it was a merged R&D team, but was a...
1: Well, it it was, I mean, it was sort of cooperative. Um, Mayo were very much involved in the uh, identification of new markers and evaluation of new markers and being able to work with their clinical colleagues in terms of collecting collecting samples, uh, which is obviously critical in the early development stages is to have the right samples from normals and people with adenomas and cancers and uh, they are, are, are very good they have a very good repository of uh, tissues and things that they uh, that patients have consented to go into their reservoir of uh, uh, technology as it were for future development of uh, cancer solutions
0: and, and and when you look at lung cancer, does it have a similar profile to colon cancer?
1: Um, it's it's a little bit different in that it's uh, much more concentrated in smokers and heavy smokers. Um, you know, eighty percent of uh, cancer or higher is in uh, the smoking population, and there is a correlation between how long and how much you've smoked, smoked, and the risk of cancer. So. It's a little bit different that way, but from early detection, it's ab- absolutely the same. If you can detect stage one, um, the surgical procedures are much more successful than, than if you're in stage three or stage four. Wow,
0: that that's that would be quite something if you guys are can make a, a dent on that. That's that's incredible. Um, just going back to the compliance question on guard, um, are you? Are you finding I mean it's, it's still sort of involved I mean it involves the patient taking it home going to the bathroom in, in the receptacle doing a scrape test sent and then sending those back in I mean that's still asking the patient to do a lot are you is the compliance problem uh, less 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 so with uh, this rather than colonoscopy
1: yeah I think we've uh, we've got some really good numbers now from the the tests that we've done, I, I should just describe how it works, um, the, uh, the doctors, you know, offer the test to their patients and if the patient uh, accepts the, the, the test then they write a prescription and that prescription is then uh, provided to our clinical lab mm-hmm. and we then call the patient and make sure that we've got all the right information and the right shipping address and everything and our collection kit is actually um, stored by UPS. We, we issue an order to UPS to ship, it's shipped to the patient's home. Patient uh, provides the sample, and we found that the, there's very little difficulty in terms of people doing, doing that test. Obviously, we had over 10,000 people do it in the clinical study, and right. so we know. Uh, they then call UPS. or drop it off at the UPS office, and it's shipped back to us. And uh, what we found is, as you know, we're all human beings. Uh, the, if we call again, we increase the uh, the compliance. And we're we're currently running above seventy uh, percent compliance in terms of people who um, got the kit in terms of returning it.
0: So uh, in, in closing here, uh, let's just chat really about who needs to take this test. I mean, is it something where y- y- you, uh, you, somebody who's scheduled to take a routine colonoscopy should say, hey, have you heard of this call of guard test? I'd prefer to take that. Uh, or is it really for people who might have genetic risk factors? Um, maybe you could just help us understand who needs to be. Yeah, I,
1: I should make it clear this is nothing to do with genetics, and there's no genetic information provided. This is, you know, DNA from an abnormal uh, cell, um, oh. but from it's it's really an asymptomatic. Anybody who is eligible for screening um, between the ages of 50 and uh, 75 for CMS or older, if their doctor decides that it's appropriate, and there's Low risk, and then it's a choice. They they have a number of choices. The doctor goes through those choices with them, and they choose the one that's most appropriate to their lifestyle or um, risk uh, uh, background. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so a lot of people choose colonoscopy. Some people choose FIT. Other people, uh, um, and a lot of people are choosing ColiGuard. So. I think it's uh, you know it's that personal choice. The, the nice thing about Cologuard is that it, it's got an approximate sensitivity that's in the range of uh, colonoscopy, which is you know believed to be somewhere between 92 and 95 uh, percent. Um, so, from a choice point of view, it's really: uh, do you want to go through the procedure? And some people do. Some people like the certainty of the uh, colonoscopy, Uh, other people, uh, you know, find it too invasive. So those choice differences. And, you know, if you're paying for it yourself, uh, it's a little less expensive.
0: So, I mean, when you guys were building the test, though, you had to beat that, you had to get into that 90 percentile in order to be a real clinical viable alternative, do you think?
1: We believe so. That was our our target was... um, you know, greater than we, our goal was greater than 85% sensitivity and 90% specificity. The numbers came out a little bit different, but we were higher in uh, sensitivity and a little bit lower in specificity. Um, but uh, we believed we had to be up there, and we designed the assay to be at that uh, sensitivity level. Yes it's quite
0: remarkable then that's a high bar to achieve it's at least it seems like from the outside i mean you're in the space is that high to achieve on a test yeah, I,
1: yeah it, it was a it was a challenge but the combination of uh, of markers each from a really a different biochemical pathway uh, the biochemical pathway of the uh, methylation abnormal methylation mutation and bleeding are, are quite different and so they work cooperatively together
0: and then just one final question in terms of your career you've had a, a terrific career where do you place this these last six years in terms of uh the impact you're making the uh, f- fulfillment you feel from it
1: oh i i would say it's uh it's really right up there i'm in mean, from the you know, just from the personal sense of achievement, uh, what we've done as an organization, what we are doing as an organization, and will do in terms of making a difference in cancer. And, uh, you know, underneath it all, there's a little bit of a selfish thing. It was a lot of fun, and it still is a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. it. sounds like you guys don't take it. Uh, I mean, you take the mission very seriously, but you, you still can say stuff like, you know, pooping in a bucket and all these yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> Enjoy the... I think we've we've heard every possible combination of food jokes.
0: <laughs> well maybe maybe that we'll share that one for the next podcast. <laughs> well thank you so much, Graham. This has been uh terrific and I wish you guys the best of luck in this mission and uh in the next endeavor with MD Anderson. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Well thank you. <laughs>